Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. We kind of always were in a dialogue and in a conversation, of course, even as small kids, really, and doing artwork together. Um, I think we were the only two students studying art A-level at our school. So the classroom was of us both, really. In this episode, I speak with British artists Jane and Louise Wilson. Twin sisters Jane and Louise Wilson are artists who have been making photographs, videos, and installations collaboratively since 1989. Their work is powerful, atmospheric, mysterious, and at times haunting. They explore what the writer Fan Zhang describes as spectacular falls from power through images of abandoned institutional buildings, deserted military outposts, and other architectural ruins of modernity. During an artist residency at the University of the Arts in London, Louise and Jane dug through the archives of filmmaker Stanley Kubrick and created a film inspired by one of his unfinished projects featuring the original actress whom Kubrick had cast for his film. After the reunification of Germany, Jane and Louise traveled to Stasi City, the abandoned headquarters of the defunct East German secret police, and created a jarring four-projection installation of the labyrinth of corridors and interrogation rooms of that complex. Through layered narratives about history and humanity, Their work touches upon themes of surveillance, identity, memory, loss, and what has been called the dark side of human experience. Their 2006 series, Sealander, is on view at the Getty through July 2, 2017. The installation features large-scale photographs of abandoned World War II bunkers along the European Atlantic coast. Jane and Louise recently visited the Getty to give a talk about their work, and I took the opportunity to speak with them beforehand. Uh, Jane and Louise, uh, how did you decide to be joint artists working together rather than individually pursuing separate careers? This is Jane. Um, before we went to, to do our MA at Goldsmiths, we did undergraduate uh, degrees. At separate places? At though. separate places, yes. Louise was at um, Duncan Johnson and I was at Newcastle upon Tyne. Duncan Johnson is in Dundee. Dundee, that's right, yeah. And during that time, we started to work together and we were producing photographs that involved each other in these sort of quite mise-en-scene set-up tableaus. And we began to kind of do portraits together with each other. And eventually we realised that actually working in this process it was very clear that the work was not going to be divided out as such but what we were going to do was to present two bodies of work identical shows in the different institutions that we were already studying at so it meant not only were we collaborating but it also meant the institutions had to so there was a kind of question about where that um, separation lies but also how that kind of collaboration is formed yeah. And, and from then, Louise. From then, um, it was logical to make a joint application to do our MA at Goldsmiths. So that's what we did. So we made a joint application for a two-year course. But actually, I suppose the reason to kind of say how did we kind of decide that we would jointly work together is we kind of always were in a dialogue and in a conversation, of course, even as small kids, really, and doing artwork together. Um, I think we were the only two students studying art A-level at our school. So the classroom was 
of us both, really. Yeah. Did you start with camera or video equipment? Uh, well, actually, we were drawing and painting, as old people do, woodcuts, all sorts of things, creating, um, you know, uh, uh, a fine art practice is what we came from. And uh, it grew out of that in terms of then moving to the photographic and then to shooting on Super 8 and then gradually building up to using more technology in terms of the video. So this is before you went on to Goldsmith? No, at Goldsmith we were, um, well, our actual final submission when Jane mentioned when um, I was at Dundee and Jane was in Newcastle, um, the reason why we had identical degree shows was because we were printing up our own photographs mm. and we could do two of everything. And we used to uh, print up large scale black and white images of, as Jane described, ourselves in various stage mise-en-scenes and a kind of performance. Um, and what was extraordinary is, of course, at Dundee, I was just seen as one individual. At Newcastle, Jane was seen as one individual. And, of course, there was this double that appeared in the works at the colleges. So this was this kind of sort of interesting kind of play that we could feel in terms of our living situation, but also in terms of our work in, in relationship with the did institution. Did it continue at Goldsmiths? I mean, did you, for your MA, produce a single body of work as two artists? I, I did. When, when we went to Goldsmiths, it was very clear as well. Um, that's part of the reason why we really wanted to apply there was because the the first question they'd said to us was who gets the M and who gets the A. It was that kind of casual. <laughs> so that was like, I think this is a good college for us. Um, you were very independent from what was, the, you know, you had your own studio and you worked independently, but they were also very encouraging of practice and of um, a more expanded idea. Of where, course, and of collaboration. Yeah. yeah. So what was it like in addition to that? I mean, what other artists were there with you at the time? Um, at the time, we also had Glenn Brown. I don't know whether you know as a painter who has had a very successful career, continues to have a very successful career. And uh, sculptor Siobhan Habaska And there. Mark Wallinger was just the, a year above us. Um, and Thomas Damand was yeah. also there as well. Yeah. So it's a wonderful Did you work together well or closely or was it a, pretty much a competitive environment and artists didn't work and share um, each other's work? I mean, I think it's really hard when it you're was kind intense, of an undergrad. But it was a yeah. good, intense environment. Yeah. I would say competitive, yes, but also it was sort of such an intense uh, period to go through because uh, if you imagine you had to work part-time to uh, support yourself because we didn't sort of get a, a grant as such, um, and you would meet every two weeks. So you would meet in a seminar environment for two sessions and then the f the third session would be a breakfast studio visit with one of the artists that was in the course with you. And I mean, these sessions would go on for about three or four hours. So, you know, there were really intense meetings, although every fortnight. Um, but you felt like you went through this experience together. You shared an experience with your fellow artists. Yeah. And I think it's important to have that identity that you're also part of a cohort there and you're kind of learning, but you're also at the stage of, of just absorbing so much information and being able to process things that I think um, it was a really intense period. But also I think what was key is that at that time in London, there wasn't the same kind of globalised art world that there is now. So it was a very different space. And, you know, the idea that you would instantly move into galleries and have exhibitions and be kind of commercials it wasn't really you know it was starting to begin but it was still very very and early. it was pre the internet and yeah, pre yeah. All of those how, how soon was there an identity for a generation of young british artists actually it was around about that time because we graduated in 92 from goldsmiths and i think was freeze not in 92 93 it was yeah. certainly in the early 90s we, yeah. but did you identify yourself with that generation actually because they did the um undergraduate 
So Damien Hirst and Sarah Lucas and Gary Hume and Abigail Lane and all of those artists, Mike Landy, they all did the undergraduate course at Goldsmiths. So they'd gone through a three-year course together, whereas we were doing the MA course, which was, as I mentioned, part-time and a two-year and a bit more remote because you had your own studio separately. It was sort of more independent. Yeah. So in 1999, you were nominated for the Turner Prize. What did it mean to you then, already in 1999, to be nominated for the Turner Prize? I mean, it was great, of course. um, But um, I think you just sort of felt uh, everything happened really quickly that year because we also did our first solo show at the Serpentine. And um, that opened around about the same time as the uh, Turner Prize exhibition did. So it was quite interesting. I think you just sort of just thought, well, you just go with the flow and do it, really, you know. Um, But um, it was a very different entity, I think, the Turner Prize then. It's interesting. It sort of, it went through a lull where people sort of felt, oh, maybe the Turner Prize, it's, it's, you know, it's a pointless competition to have in a sense. But actually now it's come back because there's some really interesting artists each year, the uh, list of nominations are always a fascinating list. So I think... Yeah, and I also think it was very different pre-2000 when, you know, there wasn't really Tate Modern. Mm-hmm. You just That's had the good Tate. Point. And having this kind of new modern art museum, which for the first time in British history, thank you, but I mean, it's happened, thank goodness. But there was something like the, you know, the Turbine Hall. And, you know, you had something like Olafia Ellison doing his installation there. So there was a very different kind of sensibility around London and contemporary art at it that point. It became more measured in terms of it being an event. You know, this sort of yeah. became one of many events. Describe somehow. the exhibition of the Serpentine for us. Um, well, we showed three video installations um, that related in the West Gallery. We showed a piece called Gamma, which was filmed in former Greenham Common. Um, it, it was an American cruise missile base that was uh, based in Berkshire in England. And this had just been decommissioned in 1990. And we filmed there in 1998. The area that we filmed was called Gamma, and that was still subject to a treaty which would end in 2000. So although the rest of the site had been pretty much decommissioned, there was one area that was still very much um, open to a Russian inspection team who would come and inspect it to make sure that there was no American missiles there. And there would be an equivalent inspection team that would go to a site in Russia uh, to make sure that there was no... um, you know, Russian missiles. So there was this kind of strange um, hangover from what was obviously the Cold War past, but was still kind of reenacting itself in terms of this site, the Gamma. Which site. brings me neatly back to um, the East Gallery, where we showed our work Stasi City, which was filmed in a former Stasi headquarters and in a former Stasi prison um, in former East Berlin. So that was in the East Gallery. And then, then in the North Gallery, we had um, a new video installation that we made that year, which was a piece called Parliament. And it was filmed in the Houses of Parliament during the summer recess. And in the South Gallery, as the entrance where you came in, there were photographs and sculptures. Were there any people involved in these videos? Um, well, yes. I mean, certainly. I ask that because when you look at the reproductions and the catalogues, sometimes the videos and the photographs are seemingly the same. In other words, often you're taking videos of architectural sites that are unpopulated by mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So I asked the question to understand for the listeners to the podcast what it was they we seeing in the Serpentine there at that exhibition. I think um, 
they all had a very different particular approach in terms of how we, we worked within the actual individual sites. So something like uh, Stasi City, as Louise mentioned, um, was in the abandoned prison and in the old former Stasi headquarters. But it was very much a four screen installation, but it was very much considering this idea of the viewer being somebody who is also being watched while they're watching. So there was this kind of sense of also being aware of a person, but also being aware of the surveillance camera. So this kind of created this very different kind of environment in terms of the way that you looked at the images. But yes, there was a figure that features that appears that um, that's, moves that's, through. It's ourselves, basically. We both yes. appear in all three works. At points, Jane is behind camera and at points, I'm behind camera. So there is this idea that Jane mentioned of uh, thinking about the mechanics of surveillance, but how we survey and how we survey one another and how we perform in front of one another. Was this a departure in your work or was this something you've been exploring by then already for some time? Well, I think we were looking certainly at, at facets around kind of performance in cinema. I mean, we'd done a, a, a hypnosis piece where we'd been hypnotised together um, sitting alongside each other um, with an English hypnotist and a Portuguese hypnotist. So we had created certain staged sort of scenes, scenarios. I mean, that was very much inspired from... Uh, the, Jean Cocteau. the Jean Cocteau quote, which said all cinema is a form of mass hypnosis. So, of course, that kind of fueled on certain ideas around that. But thinking about um, the Stasi City piece, that was very different because I think what we had was we had a, a political immediate context in terms of what the site was that was actually very loaded. And I think it's a really interesting time to think, you know, the Serpentine show was in 1999. It's often sort of you think from that period of 91 to 2001, it almost feels like a little bit of a lost decade in a sense, but it was also during the collapse of the Cold War. What makes something um, for you need to be a photograph and something else need to be a video work? Um, it's a good question. Recently, we visited um, Chernobyl and we were there in 2010 and we photographed uh, some of the buildings in around the, the town of Pripyat and looking specifically at the kindergarten, the swimming pool and at the public centres of what was the city. Um, and it was very clear to us that they really existed quite powerfully as still images and that the moving image work, which we subsequently made, the film The Toxic Camera, was something that happened in um, Piragovo, which was the nuclear waste facility where everything that was used to clean up the site of, of Pripyat was then taken to and buried for safety. So the filming was very much chasing this notion of where the toxic material had ended up rather than the actual aftermath of Pripyat, where we left them as a still image. Um, and I just need to sort of add as well, which uh, the reason why the work was called The Toxic Camera was because when we were doing our research in Kiev, uh, we had happened upon a film by a Ukrainian filmmaker called Vladimir Shevchenko. And he made a film called uh, Chernobyl Chronicle of Difficult Weeks, where he was given access three days after the nuclear meltdown in 1986 to film the cleanup operation. Um, he sadly passed away eight months after filming because he ha had and obviously been exposed Disposed. to mm. radiation. Um, but what was very interesting was that when we were there was that we interviewed his surviving members of the film crew who had worked with him. And they told us that the camera that he had used, which was a, a Russian Bolex called a Convas Aftermat, which had been taken from the film school where he taught two years after the film had been made and was buried in this site, Pirogovo. And we found this fascinating that 
the story was about the camera and the act of looking again, but also that the camera was fascinating because it captured the impact of radiation on celluloid for the first time. And this would not have happened had it been a digital format, but because it was analogue and it was on 35mm film, it caught the impact of gamma rays coming through, which kind of caused like a fogging. But what was extraordinary was Shevchenko's film was a document of an event, but it actually became an event in the process. So this is a really extraordinary part of the story that we wanted to explore in a way. Absolutely, absolutely. I think also as well to see that, as Louise said, we didn't know when we went to interview the surviving film crew who were there that actually the camera was even an issue. You know, it was something that they just told us um, in passing and I think that's what really brought forward a lot of those ideas in terms of where where we really wanted to look at making a film. But I think... And interesting in terms of what, whether, uh, you know, it always comes back to the photographic image. Even the film, the starting point is always from the photographic image. So it's, the two are in tandem in a sense. Yeah. Talk, talk about your working process. And that is how you come to agree on what you're going to pursue, what the image will be like, and whether it'll be film or whether it'll be a video. What kind of camera do you use? I mean, each project often just kind of directs you a little bit in terms of where you are, in terms of what you're bringing, what the, literally you can accommodate, what you can't. Also, you know, the boring question of some budget and other things. So things like equipment come in uh, under those kind of headings. But in terms of how we work as a process, often it's amassing a lot, a lot, a lot of material that we then document and record and then bring together. And it's very much a process of then editing down what we have, but doing that in tandem and with each other. And perhaps there's an element of it where you work together, where you want to kind of present to one another something that you um, haven't seen before. Mm. And that's always the impulse to, to kind of <laughs> engage and to see, you know, to, to kind of feel, obviously that comes from a level of trust and a connection, uh, familial, of course, in our case, but in, in a collaborative endeavour, I think it does. But I think it is that ability to kind of go on that journey without knowing the outcome. To step outside of yourself, yeah. yeah. Are you both equally behind the camera in, in a project? I or does someone dominate more behind the camera in one project and someone else want to be on the other project? I mean, it doesn't really bother us because actually it's not about having an equal time in terms of tasks or labour, in fact. It is actually um, that idea that actually you think about, you know, we're making work 99% hard work, 1%, you know, inspiration, whatever it is. But actually, I think what you're interested in is seeing something that challenges you and excites you. And that's just bottom line, what interests us about working together. So after the Turner Prize, um, you presented a, a set of uh, images uh, that are mysterious residues of space flight in Star City, of empty spacesuits in a cosmonaut training center in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that project and also describe it for us. Well, it was very interesting. We were invited to do a show in a gallery in Moscow called Gallery TV. And whilst we were there, we met with the British Council in Moscow and they introduced us to a wonderful woman called Dr. Elizabeth Bell, who was a scientist based with the British Council. And she said it would be a really interesting project to encourage a science art collaboration crossover. and a crossover and that was her kind of her role to encourage that I hasten to add this was sort of slightly pre-President um, Putin but relations were rather um, Better. more harmoni- <laughs> harmonious at that point in time and so um, we spoke with the Russian Space Agency through uh, our guidance from Elizabeth Bell uh, we discussed filming in Star City and then 
she said, well, if you film in Star City, which is north of Moscow and it's the cosmonaut training program, you must film in the sister site, which is Baikonur in Kazakhstan, which hmm. is where the space program and all of the rockets, the Proton rocket, the Soyuz rocket and uh, Energia Buran were all launched from that site. But what's amazing about Baikonur is that it's a piece of Russia that's sanctioned, that was um, basically unloaned or, or, or kind of rented by the Kazakh government to the Soviet former Soviet Because Union. after Glasnost, Yeltsin had, had sold it, basically. So this was this jewel in the crown of what was space exploration in terms of the Soviet uh, Union. But obviously they had to hemorrhage certain things. And uh, that was one of the first things that they did, which was to sell this back to the Kazakh government, which would, they would then rent. So um, it became a, a financial transaction. Uh, but it was interesting to know that there was a rail link from Moscow from Star City all the way direct to Baikonur in Kazakhstan. And so they would, uh, you know, send things down on a rail link, which was incredible that these sites were linked. And there's an extraordinary story as well that we were there that they mentioned at the Russian Space Agency that, you know, Lenin was God and Gagarin was Christ. And you think about that sort of the, almost this kind of religious endeavour of doing the space programme because it meant progress. But of course, somewhere like Baikonur was where Yuri Gagarin was first launched from in a Soyuz rocket. So it had a kind of very powerful identity with with a lot of the Soviet Union. There's one image in which you show six chairs behind a desk with six microphones. And on one side, there are Russian names. The other side, U.S. names. There's a Russian flag on one side and U.S. flag Mm -hmm. on the other side. And no one's visible in the room. It's as if this nostalgic for a time in which there was cooperation, as you said, but there's no longer cooperation. Well, in our discussions to film in Baikonur, we met the Russian Space Agency uh, in Moscow. And they said, well, which sites would you like to film in? And we said, well, we actually don't really know because we've not been there before. (laughs) Um, And so they said, well, actually, this is the first time we have a book in English and Russian because of the Russian-American collaboration to do this first launch, and that they produced this book, and it documented all the sites in Baikonur, all the launch sites, because these are like 200 kilometres apart, you know? Oh, well, it gave area. you a map. Exactly, yeah. it gave you a map. So we could work out from that, and they said, it was very extraordinary. I remember them saying, well, you can take the book home, and you can read it from cover to cover, but you mustn't copy anything. And we dutifully nodded our heads and said, certainly we won't copy anything. And then they said, but actually to take it out of the building, they have to wrap it in newspaper. This mentality was just extraordinary. Yes. I mean, well, it was very useful because, unfortunately, we did copy it at the TV gallery, but never mind. But it obviously got us there. And and these works were first shown in Russia? Actually, you know what? That's a real shame because there was conversation to do that. But it's extraordinary. You know, Stasi City has never been shown in Berlin. Berlin. (laughs) All right. No. And the works that were made in Russia, unfortunately, have not been shown. So that you don't have a Russian reaction to the projects? Well, we had hoped we would have been able to show Dreamtime in Kazakhstan, actually. We went to Almaty. And we had discussions there with the British Council and we had hoped that it could have been staged. But I don't think there was the kind of facility at that point. No. Yeah. What about the project in 2003, Safe Light, which is a microchip factory, I think, uh, completely unpopulated, but evidence that there have been people there just a moment before you photographed or videoed the, the scene. Tell us about that and the extraordinary clarity of these images and the kind of antiseptic quality of the environment that you had to capture in your video and in the, the film. 
Well, they're bathed in a yellow light because safe light is like the safety light that you have in the darkroom. These uh, were images that were shot inside a microchip processing plant called Atmel. I think it was an American microchip processing plant. The building had been originally set up by Siemens for microchip processing and then it was taken over by this company uh, called Atmel. What was fascinating to us was that um, it was, I think, six floors and five floors functioned to make one floor absolutely the perfect conditions for uh you could almost have an operation in that yeah. room mm. but it was because uh to not uh, have any contamination in the microchip processing but also to make it into a giant architectural camera as such because it is yes. working as a functioning building as a process it looks as if um in this antiseptic quality has a kind of dangerous allure to it. Uh, the colors are intense. There's kind of brightly yellows and oranges. The lighting is strange, shall we say, lighting. Uh, what What is it that attracted you to this location for a project? Was it the narrative that would be indelibly part of it, or was it the formal qualities of the architecture and the equipment? I think it was the formal qualities, but also the fact that it it was a way to kind of visualize an idea of mass automation Mm -hmm. and to think about um, what we were really intrigued by was a kind of architecture where it's function dictated its form yeah it was very much inspired because the piece became a 13 screen installation which was a multi-screen installation which was called a free anonymous monument and it was based on a victor passmore's um pavilion the apollo pavilion which is in peter lee which is a new town in the northeast and it was named after a famous miner peter lee um there had been several exhibitions around Victor Passmore and his work and his oeuvre, but a lot of them deleted any mention of this pavilion and the town and everything else because actually it had become a bit of an eyesore to the local community. It's actually a beautiful, brutalist concrete structure. Um, And it wasn't that it had sort of become an eyesore as such, it was just that it hadn't been maintained. No, it hadn't. There was an element of feeling it was, why is this art? Is it a provocation? Um, Perhaps a sculpture of the famous miner, Peter Lee, would have been more acceptable. But in fact, what is so brilliant about Passmore's impulse to produce uh, a free and anonymous monument, which is how he described it, was because he was given the option to produce anything for his legacy. I mean, he could have produced a town hall, he could have produced a library, he could have produced an institution of uh, some kind of civic quality, but instead he chose to do a free and anonymous monument, which was entirely um, a work that, if you think about it, its function did not have to necessarily dictate its form. Yeah. So, so most of these projects were produced by you within just a few years after the Turner Prize exhibition itself. So let's say 2003, so four years later. Uh, I'm looking at some images and a catalogue um, from four years after that, 2008, 2009, uh, a body of work called Oddments. Very different in the sense that it's looking at an archive, a library filled with old books, not antiseptic machines of the new age, but rather of some earlier age, in which a f- mysterious figure is walking through mm-hmm. it. Can you describe that to us? The Oddman's rooms were photographed in Mag's Antiquarian Bookstore, which uh, is uh, was rather in Barclay Square, and sadly it's no longer there, it no longer exists. But the Oddman's rooms were fascinating because they're basically... Um, first editions. First I mean, editions, worth thousands yeah. and thousands of pounds, yeah. a lot of them, but missing a frontispiece or 
something in the spine or certain parts um, to make them a complete valuable uh, book. They were oddments. And what we wanted to do is photograph and stage something within that after being inspired by the Kubrick archive. Yes, and so the figure is... Um, one of us, <laughs> and uh, and it's a back. Only view. one of it's you. It's only one of us. It's not at one you. at a time. It could be either of you. Yeah, exactly. And each pairing is with um, a single measure. This body of work looks as if a crime is about to take place, or a crime has taken place. There's a mystery element to this. What was that for you? Why were you attracted to that? I guess there's a different kind of narrative within these because they're very much um, pre what we did in terms of the Kubrick archive and it it led to a work which is called Unfolding the Aryan Papers but at the time we were researching still images in Kubrick's archive and also looking at images that he'd acquired from the Ealing Film Archive which became very key for us in terms of thinking about how People took frames of measurement in terms of designs for set building and for recreating um, architectural fragments, but also for making it for the purposes of film. So it was uh, an interesting process that from the 30s and 40s was often used in terms of using the yardstick measure and somebody holding them there. Describe that to us. You put this into these photographs. These are long, thin pieces of wood that are painted black and white, sometimes checkerboard-looking, sometimes striped. What, what do they measure? And, and what did you mean by including them in these photographs? They're um, a two-yard stick. So it's like a kind of roughly six foot. So it would have been a kind of adult male. Human scale. It's a human scale. As Jane mentioned, they were used for um, set design. But it was also um, a, a kind of indicator that was placed for uh, for scale and also for forensic photography as well. So, so looking at these images, one wants to suggest that you are thinking about triggering a, a kind of walking through a mind or a, in that, that's m-i-n-d not m-i-n-e because there's accumulated thoughts that are put on these pages of all these books and we see this person one one of you either louise or jane uh, from behind as if going deeper and deeper and deeper into this this mind of information and knowledge and which is past information, past knowledge, so it's going backwards in time. Did you have a sense of that as well? I think it's a beautiful description what you've just used there, but I also think as well it really talks about the process of film and Mm. the process of a manuscript and the process of a film manuscript and the idea of tracing back a story and tracing back through a narrative and understanding how you kind of then move back through into a historical moment and consider that. So it's very much a threshold space. So you've referenced this project, Unfolding the Aryan Papers, which was two years before Oddments, 2006. Mm-hmm. Or so. mm-hmm. Tell us about that. So Jane was mentioning about looking at these images from the Kubrick archive. We were given access to the archive initially for 10 days in 2008. And then, of course, this became a lot more, more as we got more involved. But our first thought was there was so much in this archive. It was mm. fascinating. Mm. But then we thought, well, how do we start? How do we access this? Because Kubrick is such an incredible artist of the 20th century. How do we access what he has done in a way? And we thought, well, um, the only way to do it was to maybe look at the projects that hadn't happened. And one was a film on Napoleon and the other was a film called Aryan Papers. We saw um, images of what we appeared to be a wardrobe shoot. And we were looking at these images, seeing um, uh, this same lady, the same lady. Yes. And actually, it wasn't a wardrobe shoot with a model. She was, in fact, the lead actress, Johanna Tersteeg, and she would have been the lead in the film had the film Aryan Papers been made. 
So um, these images were very intriguing to us because we were just very curious about this mysterious figure. And often the views would be back views because they're looking at clothes. So this was a sort of inspiration for us in terms of what we did in the Oddman's Room photographs. And we worked with her after we'd photographed in the Oddman's Room on a film called Unfolding the Aryan Papers. And those are film stills from the actual piece of work that we made called Unfolding the Aryan Papers. And actually just to mention that Aryan Papers, the script is based on a book by the writer Louis Begley called Wartime Lies. Mm. And um, it's a fascinating slim volume of a book based on a true story of an aunt and her nephew who are forced into the Warsaw Ghetto but manage to escape by uh, passing themselves off as Catholics through this process of gaining Aryan papers. And so it would have been an identification to obviously escape the worst of the ghetto. Mm. So it's very much about that diaspora, that displacement through the Holocaust. You're becoming at this point in your career a bigger storyteller than you were in the 2001, 2002, 2003, when you were taking photographs and taking videos of silent operating rooms, shall we say, in in a scientific sense. What did that mean for you? What compelled you to these stories? I mean, when you say we became a bigger storyteller, we do have to thank Mr. Stanley Kubrick, who was an extraordinary, you know. So, I mean, of course, I'm just thinking, but actually, in a way, what became for us the intriguing process about this work was the time shift, like Jay mentioned, you know, when Johanna was originally cast in the role, it was 1993. We um, have stills of her from 1993 undergoing her workshops and her thinking for the character, but we film her in 2008 Mm. performing some of her lines and restaging some of the workshops. So there's a constant sort of sense in which you feel she's caught between this being and becoming. Mm. And so the actress herself, actually, she never ever inhabited the lead role. Mm. But actually there's something really compelling about that possibility of her becoming somehow and that's where she stays yeah in, in some respects so we were really intrigued about that too. yeah uh, I think it's very much as Louise says it's very much about those between between those two stages and between those two states so it, it has a different kind of um narrative impulse in terms of what it's um exposing but also looking into it has a different kind of complexity I suppose because you're actually really understanding that time shift in that real moment of time but also understanding the inability to actually be present in that but also the experiment to try and achieve that I can understand that you would be attracted to the work of a filmmaker because you're a moving mm-hmm. image artist mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but why Kubrick of all of them? Oh, he was an amazing stills photographer. photographer. Before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, images, of course. It's always been images. Yeah. Yeah. But was it also the mysteries that he told and the stories that he told when he made his moving images? I mean, I think often that's how he chooses to frame things, how he looks at things through the camera, how he actually, you know, makes you see something afresh, see something different. It's very challenging, always how he's worked in terms of the technology that he brought towards his film, whether he was developing special lenses or even inventing, of course, which is what everybody uses now, the um, uh, Steadicam. But also I think about how important Tarkovsky was as well to um, a whole generation yeah. of uh, film of artists, filmmakers as well. And I think, you know, we'll go back to something, a piece like Starsy City, where um, there's a figure levitation sequence at one point. And this is a kind of direct quotation from Solaris mm-hmm. in the movie where they actually uh, achieve zero gravity. 
and and I think it's interesting as well because it's the architecture in that site because that building was so uh, in a vacuum, literally in terms of what had been left after the collapse of the wall. Nobody had really touched anything or wanted to deal with anything. And in fact, it was seen as a kind of possible memorial site. You know, gradually over the time we gained trust and we were gradually able to open more and more doors and to see things and to look at the, the bureaucratic buildings that they had there. Um, but it was a very slow process of, of gaining that kind of uh, ability to go through and to see them. But also when you were there, you were very conscious that you weren't going to touch anything or interfere with anything or disrupt anything. And so we had this very strange situation where we did film a figure levitation sequence, but we had to do that with an independent scaffold using wires that could not be drilled into any of the walls of the room that we were filming in because it was still seen as a memorial site. So there was a very tough set of decisions around that but it really meant for a work that was uniquely cited in that architecture. And also I think it's interesting to imagine that at that time you could travel thousands and thousands of miles into space in East Berlin but you could not take that short journey across to to the the west. Mm -hmm. To the west. Now now you're here at the Getty because we have on view a series of photographs of yours you've entitled Sealander and they date from 2006. Uh, They're large black and white images of abandoned World War II bunkers erected under Hitler along the European Atlantic coast and they're at once large abstract concrete shapes of a kind that we might prize as modern brutalist architecture or for what they were large defensive forms used in wartime or now what they might seem to be, a kind of Stonehenge-like fragments of a civilization now forgotten. Uh, what attracted you to those, and was that a departure for you from the work that you've been doing? I mean, of course, we've always been aware of Paul Virilio's wonderful bunker archaeology, but we were also really um, intrigued by an essay that J.G. Ballard had written called A Handful of Dust, where he talks about the sort of failed modernist project of post-war architecture, in particular of the uh, bunkers along the Normandy coastline. And he um, describes these almost as being sort of left by another civilization of mad scientists obsessed with war and geometry and death. And I just think this is something really extraordinary to kind of see, and of course it's from the perspective of a science fiction writer. So that was really inspired by Ballard, but also I think, you know, to go into those spaces and just to kind of see the corporeality of these structures and also the feeling of whether or not are they going into the sea or are they emerging from the sea? Mm. I think there are bunkers in Vienna and in Berlin that are so uh, firm, so strongly constructed that they can't be destroyed or there'd be too complicated to destroy them are these similarly that they can't be easily blown up and destroyed and and of course and that's what so brilliantly goes if you kind of go back to 2003 and you look at a free and anonymous monument and you think of the apollo pavilion the local community had wanted it to be removed but of course they discovered that it would probably take the size of a small h-bomb to get rid of it because it was such solid concrete so this is the kind of really intriguing sort of thing about these bunkers in a sense and this brutalist architecture is that it speaks of a sort of time of an impermanence but actually they're so difficult to and and what I think so interesting about them is that as you pointed out they are these kind of modern day ruin and they don't go away you know they're still there embedded in the landscape and still part of that history so I think those kind of um, very strong sculptural qualities of you know and Ballard talks about it coming from a race of Teutonic knights obsessed with geometry and death 
<laughs> you know, this is kind of very loaded. But it is very curious to see these relics. Yeah. yeah. So we're now in 2017. Um, the once Cold War has passed and the post-Cold War is passed and we're on a warming up war, it seems. Uh, what's next for you? Well, um, what's next for us is to um, tour the work that we just showed recently at our exhibition in um, Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art in Mima. It's a work called Undead Sun, We Put the World Before You, two film installations that we made. One was uh, funded by the Wellcome Trust and the other was funded from the Imperial War Museum and the Arts Council. So it kind of gives you some idea of coming full circle from 1914 to 2014, where we made Undead Sun, and from 2018, when we will show Undead Sun, uh, we put the world before you, which will be, of course, the centenary since the end of the First World War. Yeah. And uh, 2018 is also interesting because we would hopefully be showing some of our work at the Met and it will be an exhibition called Art and Conspiracy. So that's also coming up. Yeah. So you're not running out of political war type subject matter. Well, we might be going to an archipelago. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. We're not allowed to say. Well, we're thrilled to have Sealander and have the exhibition here. So thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. for your time too. Thank you, thank you very much. With this episode, we finish the first year of Arts and Ideas. We think we've struck a chord, and we thank you for your interest. If you have any suggestions about what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes or want to tell us how we're doing, let us know by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, tweeting me at Jim Cuno, that's J-I-M-C-U-N-O, or emailing us at podcasts at getty.edu. We'll be back on July 12th with a new season of Arts and Ideas. Until then... Thanks very much for listening. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Music.